Good morning. I'm glad that you are here to, <clears throat> excuse me, we're glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. We're going to start our service this morning with a song called God So Loved, a song of celebration based on the verse of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son to save us. Um, we are excited to celebrate communion. This is going to be a service of celebration, and I invite you at this time to stand with us. Let's sing, maybe even put our hands together as we sing this together in rejoicing. Come 
Good morning, Cypress Bible Church. I'm Tony Svensson, the Go Pastor. Uh, For God so loved the world. Isn't it amazing what we see God doing right now around the, the globe? And isn't it amazing that we get to be a part of God's redemptive story? And as a church, we've got many opportunities for you to be involved in that. If you're not, we encourage you to be a part of it. Within the Go ministry, we've recently just launched uh, Cyprus Cultural Connection. And uh, we invite you to be a part of that. We're going to be, we've already launched a Creole ministry to minister to the Creole-speaking people of the Houston area and beyond. Uh, we're getting ready to launch a Vietnamese team that will target uh, the Vietnamese community. So if you speak Vietnamese or you have a Vietnamese neighbor or you have interest in getting involved with that, let us know. Uh, we're also going to launch English as a Second Language, ESL. Uh, so if you have a background in that, we would love for you to be a part of that team. Uh, we're also exploring the opportunity to have Spanish as a second language. Uh, we have a, a huge opportunity in Houston to minister to the Spanish community, and so it'd be a great opportunity for us to learn. Uh, we're also exploring an opportunity to partner with Moore Elementary School and that community, so there's going to be opportunities there. And so we're just excited about all that God is doing uh, around the globe and what he's doing right here in Houston, Texas, in Cypress, Texas. Uh, next sec- Saturday, uh, you'll have an opportunity to serve as a church, so we invite you to come out at 10 a.m. on Saturday and be a part of that. Uh, We've got Saturate USA where we're putting uh, door hangers on doors that have a gospel track in the Jesus film and information about Cypress Bible Church. Uh, We're ministering in two apartment complexes. And uh, next Saturday, we are going to launch a gardening ministry. Uh, How do we use gardening as an entry field to the gospel? And so there's opportunities right here on campus and beyond. And so if you have a, an interest or a passion for gardening, we invite you to come out and be a part of that this next second Saturday. Uh, so an update, last year we did VBS and the, and the kids had an opportunity to partner uh, with global missionaries. And we, we launched a partnership in South Africa uh, through Africa for Christ and Motherwell. And the kids raised some funds. And sometimes you think, well, what what could kids really do in terms of global ministry? Uh, Well, one of the churches we partnered with uh, had an average of 20 to 30 people in their church. And the kids were able to raise some funds, and we were able to build kind of a community center in which the church was going to launch out of. And uh, over the past year during COVID, they were were able to launch a a food ministry where they had uh, an opportunity to feed the community and and partner with that and share the gospel. Um, And so they just were able to reopen six weeks ago, and they've been averaging over 200 people every Sunday morning. And so, yeah. And in addition to that, they've launched over 100 Discover Bible Studies in the community, uh, 40 of which are all seeker. They're not believers yet. And so it's just amazing to see what God is doing around the world. And again, the opportunity we have to serve. Uh, Our Kids Life uh, Ministry is going to continue that this summer. Uh, Their doors have been open since September uh, 2020 for kids programming. And we want our kids to be able to have this opportunity to continue to learn more about Jesus. And so we invite you uh, over the next 14 weeks over the summer from June 6th to September the 5th to be a part of that. Uh, We're looking for 34 adults and 32 students to make this happen. Uh, So we invite you 
to the red door out here in the comments to learn more about that. Uh, or you can go to cypressbible.org slash summer. Um, but I, I guess the, the red door is probably going to be your easiest bet. Uh, so I encourage you to be a part of all that God is doing through Cypress Bible Church. Uh, as we prepare our hearts to worship, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we are just amazed at your infinite love for us, your infinite love for this world in which you sent your son into to pay the ultimate price. We thank you, Lord, though we worship you as a, a risen Savior, and we commit our time to you this morning to worship you for the salvation that we have received and the opportunity we have to make you known among the nations. Would you be glorified through our worship this morning, Lord? We pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue singing, uh, proclaiming the name Hosanna together. Would you stand with us as we sing? As we sing. As we sing.
Jesus of whom we sing. Psalm 118, the psalmist says this, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Would you sing with me in gladness as we honor Jesus, the cornerstone of our faith?
sound Oh may I then in him be found Dress in his righteousness alone Faultless stand before the throne Jesus, we honor you this morning as our cornerstone, our only hope of salvation, the only thing that allows us to stand before God. It's in his name that we sing and we pray. Amen. You may be seated. in worship, everything that we do becomes more important. Every single thing. We uh, fail when we mix anything in that distracts us from honoring God. Despite the fact that uh, today is a special birthday for someone I love, to turn attention to her in this gathering, would disrespect, would dishonor God. Last week, uh, as we continued our study through 1 Corinthians, the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that had gone astray in a variety of ways, we, uh, we saw how in that church, some at least, were dishonoring God by the clothes that they wore in worship, by their hairstyles or hair length, by the blurring of gender distinctions. And uh, that's just uh, another way in which we emphasize how crucial it is that when we gather together, that we uh, don't dishonor God by what we do or say, uh, whether it is our attitude in worship or how we choose not to uh, and participate in worship, all kinds of ways that we can both distract those around us, uh, dishonor God, dishonor uh, and, and distract the angels even. We saw that last week. The, uh, the problem with, with the blurring of gender distinctions and clothing and hair, as we saw last week, was that these things were largely imitating the worship of Dionysus and Aphrodite and Hermaphroditus and other gods and goddesses that uh, uh, were popular in the Roman Empire. So it created this confusion in the church and around the church was a huge distraction as to why uh, the, the gathering was together to uh, worship the Lord. And so now, in that same context, I explained to you last week, Paul corrects another problem. That's what he's doing throughout 1 Corinthians. He's correcting problems, problems we need to hear about and, and correct as well. And, and this one is about communion, the Lord's table, as God's people gathered together. How? they were celebrating the Lord's table, made it actually more of a curse than a blessing. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want to point to three instructions that make communion a blessing and not a curse. Because actually there can be some negative things that result from participating or how we participate in the Lord's table, and we need to watch out for those. Though I, uh, as a, a, a young child, had the privilege of growing up in a family who knew and loved Jesus, and they, they shared the gospel with me at a young age, and as a, as a child, I put my trust in Jesus. My parents uh, 
set some parameters around like when I could take communion. And I don't remember exactly what it was they were waiting for, but a number of years, several years anyway, after I first put my trust in Christ, uh, they, they said, I think you're ready now to, uh, to participate in communion with the, with the rest of the church. And so uh, I did so with, with uh, great joy and excitement. Um, and whether it was that first Sunday I was allowed to take communion or shortly thereafter, something happened that really made me angry. My mother allowed my little brother to take communion too. Three years younger than me. Where are all the parameters that I had to go? Where are the hoops I had to jump through? And I was angry during communion. When I came home from church that day, after having celebrated uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I threw my Bible against the wall in utter disgust. This is a joke, I said. So clearly, I was really ready to take communion. I really understood what it was all about. There are ways in which we can participate in communion that are more of a curse than a blessing so let's look at what the apostle paul says some of them are basic and understandable but we need to we need to look at this context to see what's going on the first instruction is communion must emphasize our equality in christ verse 17 but in the following instructions i cannot praise you for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together first of all I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. It's not the Lord's Supper you're concerned about when you come together. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly I do not. So what Paul says here is all about what happens when the church comes together. They meet together. Uh, Sunorexise is the verb here, and it appears five times in the passage that we're studying this morning. Five times, and it means to, to uh, gather, to assemble. So this is, th- th- this is a problem that happens when the church comes together, when they meet for corporate worship. And, and in this time, Paul says, you're divided. There's some division. Of course, that's been going on through this whole letter. And Paul says that division, actually, there's some good to it because it reveals those who are truly, genuinely interested in honoring God and those who are not. So the biggest division, though, was how they celebrated communion. You recognize that most of the time, I think uh, most cases, the early church gathered in homes as it began to grow. And whose homes would they gather in? Well, it would be in the the wealthy members of the church, because they're the ones who had separate houses. They're the ones who had enough space and enough money to host a gathering. And of course, the church was made up of all kinds of of different levels of society. We, We see that clearly in the New Testament. That was true in Corinth. You had slaves and ex-prostitutes and day laborers and business owners and wealthy elite, all top to bottom, all part of the church. 
One of the reasons that the early church met, particularly late at night, was so that they could accommodate everybody's schedule, because they all had different schedules. So what Paul is addressing here is how the, uh, apparently those who were independently wealthy, they could start church anytime they wanted during the day, and, and uh, so you'd have the uh, hosts, and you'd have the wealthy guests get started on the food and wine, in the triclinium. And this is a, an illustration of the triclinium, basically the dining room. This is uh, uncovered by archaeology, established in that way, and you'd have uh, a table and couches where people would recline around that table, and servants would then go and serve the, the meal to those who were reclining. Now, the triclinium uh, really only accommodated about 10 people. Could be 8, could be 12, but that was about the limit for the triclinium, the dining room of the house. And so then you have uh, uh, the, 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 those who were able to be there early begin the feasting and enjoying themselves. I had the privilege of uh, studying under New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, and uh, he would uh, talk about uh, this. And, and, and I remember he was explaining the, uh, the, the rich people, and they would have their caviar, he said, and their, and their prawns and their bottle of Beaujolais. I can't imitate him, but... And so I had never tasted caviar, but I knew what it was. I did not know what prawns were. I had no idea. It took me years to figure out, well, it's just big shrimp is all. And Beaujolais, I was a Baptist kid. I had no idea what that was, but it came in a bottle. I figured that's why I didn't know what it was. But he was emphasizing that these are the rich people, they have all their good stuff that they're bringing, and they get started early on the dinner here. And, and so then the, uh, the other people began to show up, and as they filled the triclinium, here's a, here's a Roman villa that's uh, depicted from archaeology, and there are numbers of these, but I've, I've outlined the dining room, the triclinium. You see that's a, a separate room, and then out in the atrium, that, that would lead off of that. That was a larger space. It didn't have... Uh, tables or chairs or couches, but as people began to show up and they filled the triclinium, then they would be seated in the, they would take a spot on the floor in the atrium. And these would be the independent business people who could knock off early. And then next came the ex-slaves and the laborers and the free citizens who had some handle on their own schedule. And then you know, that, that triclinium would seat up to about 50 people. So you could have maybe 60 people or so in this gathering. And the last people to arrive would be the slaves. Well, what kind of slave? What, th- what time would they get there? It depends on the kind of slave. And there, in the Roman world, there were varieties of, of slaves. You could, you could have the slaves who were basically very learned and private tutors. In fact, they were physicians because... Uh, they, they still could be slaves, and yet they were doctors. and They had some freedom in their schedule, and they, w- they would arrive, knock off a little earlier. But, but most of the slaves, were they, they had no freedom, and they weren't able to get away until everything had been done. They were the ones that had to put the cat out at night. And so once that was all done, they would arrive to the, uh, the worship gathering. And of course, they didn't bring food with them. They did not have that. So by the time they got to the worship gathering, all the food and wine was gone, or only the dregs were left on the potluck dish. You've been there. You know what that's like. And so there was not much to partake in. And Paul says, what you're doing, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's not the Lord's table. You're, you're not waiting for each other. You're not sharing. 
Some of you are overindulging, he says, which is a problem because it's just like a pagan feast. That's what they did to celebrate Dionysus in his worship and Bacchus. Uh, so you, you're, you're, you're overindulging like a pagan feast. You're humiliating those in the congregation who have less than you. You're despising the church. He says he uses very strong language here. You're, you're treating it like it's nothing. And whereas the gathering around the Lord's table should have been an occasion for the greatest unity, instead it was showcasing division in the church. Division between those who have and those who did not have. The the rich and the poor. The the selfish and the sincere. The the status seekers and the the shamed. And and so Paul is chewing out those who gorged themselves and who were getting drunk in the dining room while people in the atrium were starving. Now, we have a much different context, don't we? We've, we've actually separated the celebration of communion from a meal altogether um, in regular church life. And in fact, we, we have it so that basically everybody gets the same thing, right? And now that uh, we don't pass trays, at least uh, for the last year or so, uh, everybody gets that little cup with a wafer in the top, and everybody is the same, and we all have to open the same two seals to take communion together. So there's some equality in that, and I guess that's good. Uh, it allows us to focus on the meaning, but we must not lose sight of the fact that that is, that is the very purpose, that we are united in Christ. And the bread and the cup don't do anything to save you. This meal is only for those who have already recognized their sin and turned to Christ alone. And it's not for those who seem to be perfect or who, who are mature in faith only. It is for all of us who believe, whether we are new in Christ or whether we're grizzled veterans, whether we're poor or rich, joyful or grieving, weak or strong, with the bread and the cup we rejoice that we are united in Christ. We're together in Him. And we don't do this as individuals We gather to take these elements together as one body. So that's the first instruction. The second instruction uh, is communion must remember Jesus' sacrifice with profound respect. Profound respect. Verse 23. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass it unto you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So Paul is is declaring that he didn't bring anything new with him to Corinth when he shared this message. He was only giving out what had been given to him by the Lord. And he uses technical terms here, the Greek words paralambano and paradidomai. Those are technical terms of, of passing along what was true and traditional. It describes the message that Jesus gave the bread and the cup to his disciples. The disciples passed those words and that tradition to Paul who handed it on to the church in Corinth and other cities as well jesus created this observance of communion on the night he was betrayed he took these simple elements and introduced a memorial a way to remember what it's all about 
When Jesus said of the bread, this is my body, he doesn't mean that it becomes his flesh at every communion service. He means it represents him. We understand it. I, when uh, I was with our team in Nepal, one of the trips that we took there, uh, one of the ways that uh, I think several of us decided to share the gospel was to create a kind of a picture book that allowed us to, uh, to show something as we shared the gospel message. And I was advised that when I did that, the first picture should be of my family so that I could identify to them who I was. And so I had a picture of um, Amy and myself and uh, two daughters and son-in-law and three grandchildren. And uh, would share that with them and go through and point out uh, who was who and said, this is my family. Even though uh, this was a completely other culture, no one was confused and wondered why my family was, not, was so small and one-dimensional. Nobody thought that. They all recognized this is a picture. This represents his family. Uh, and that's how we understand Jesus' words, that the bread is his body, doesn't turn into his body, it represents it. With the physical piece of bread, we remember him. And it's so powerful when he says, given for you. We touch, we taste the bread, and we remember that the perfect Jesus took our sin on his own body, gave himself as a sacrifice for us. And the cup represents Jesus pouring out of his blood. Uh, that his life's blood was poured out for us. That, that With this cup, we remember the shedding of his blood is brought us new life. Through the suffering and death of Christ, we have peace with God. He took the punishment we deserved. His blood washes us clean from the death penalty of sin. And, and the table of the Lord reminds us that Christianity is not some mystical religion disconnected from reality. Uh, the, these elements that we drink and eat that we touch and taste, remind us that Christianity is rooted in history. Uh, and so the Lord's Supper is, is foundationally about remembering, not imagining, not dreaming. It's remembering that once for all, in history, Jesus died in our place, rescuing all who receive him by grace through faith. And with the bread and the cup, Paul says, we announce, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Uh, so with these elements, we deliver a sermon every time we eat and drink with understanding as to what these mean. With this very simple meal, we proclaim the gospel. We preach the gospel. Every single one of us who takes those elements with understanding preaches the gospel. And since we are to do this until he returns, this reminds us that we're not merely celebrating death. We are celebrating the resurrected Lord as well. He is alive. And by eating and drinking, I tell myself and we tell each other that Jesus is all I need. I feed on him. He satisfies my deepest needs and longings. He is my hope, my victory, my all. And we preach every time we do this in remembrance of him. Chris Say tells about a young man who came to him after church and said, Pastor, every Sunday... I used to be in this neighborhood at a bar called Emo's, and I'd start every night in that bar with a, a drop of ecstasy on my tongue, and I'd wash it down with Bacardi 151. That's what I did, he said, Pastor, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and now I come to a worship service, and instead I finish the evening with the body of Christ on my tongue, and I wash it down with the blood of Christ, and this is the kingdom of God. That young man went from partying to preaching, 
whenever we ate the bread and drank the cup of the Lord. That's what we do. That's why it's so crucial that we, that we partake in this with understanding, recognizing what these elements stand for, what they represent. Uh, and so uh, here's what Paul has done so far. Uh, these three instructions, first of all, is that how to make communion a blessing, not a curse. First of all, you've got to emphasize our equality in Christ. That's part of what this is about, to remind us that we're one in Christ. And then secondly, rather than overindulging, remember that Jesus' sacrifice uh, is what this is all about. And, and, and remember this was with profound respect, this awesome work of our Savior. And now comes the third instruction. And without this, without this, the Lord's table is more of a curse than a blessing. And this, I think, is the most applicable part of what Paul says to the Corinthians to us today. Here's, I think, extremely applicable to understand that communion must include self-examination. Must include self-examination. Verse 27. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking from the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we examine ourselves... We will not be examined by God and judged in this way. But when we are judged and disciplined by the Lord, we will not be condemned with the world. Now, it's very important to recognize that when Paul says about coming in an unworthy manner, that he's describing the method, the attitude. Here, this is an adverb that Paul uses to describe how you approach eating and drinking at the table of the Lord. It's not an adjective describing the person. It does not say uh, whoever is unworthy is in danger. No, it's not about the unworthiness of the person. It's about the unworthiness of the approach of the person. It's about how you go about communion. It's how you approach it, how you think about it, the, the method. So what is an unworthy manner? Well, it's, it's saying, oh, I remember the death of the Lord while I'm nurturing all kinds of sin in my heart. It's essential li essentially lies and deception. There's no way I can ever, ever, ever be worthy of the body and blood of Christ. But a worthy manner of approach means that I confront my sin, that I confess it, that I repent of it. I, I, if you come to this table saying, I remember the body and blood of the Lord, when deep down inside you're nurturing resentment against one or more people, or arrogance, or prayerlessness, or lust, or hatred, or gossip, or fill in the blank, that is when you're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You're sinning against the cross. You're sinning against the sacrifice of our Savior. You say, I remember, and yet you disrespect the Savior by nurturing your sin, by holding on to it, by refusing to face up to it and confess it. See, the whole point of the bread and the cup, they're meant to call us toward self-examination and repentance. Now, this does not mean that you can't come to the table unless you're sinlessly perfect. Because no one would ever show up then. Uh, it's impossible. The issue is, will you approach the Lord's table with self-examination and confession of sin? 
If you aren't ready and willing to do that, to come eat and drink with self-examination, confession, then the, the celebration of the Lord's table only becomes a mockery. Worse than that, it becomes a blasphemy. Uh, we are claiming to celebrate our salvation on the outside while deep down we're preferring our sin on the inside. But the truth is Christ has died for us, yet that freedom does not mean we can be careless in how we approach the Lord. And this carelessness is what you and I must be warned against in our day. Not to allow something to, to go by as, as some mere ritual or some bit of magic, but rather to provoke our understanding and our plea with God to come to Him through faith in Christ and confess our sin, not be careless. Um, Paul says that at least some of the reason that there are ailments, illnesses, sicknesses in the congregation are because they nurtured sin while still approaching the Lord's table. Now the Bible does not teach that all illness is the direct result of an immediate sin. It does not teach that. Uh, we, we should not be so foolish to think that every single illness is a direct result of some specific disobedience in our lives or anybody's life. But neither should we be so foolish to think that sin and illness is never connected. That sin and illness is, uh, is never connected to an immediate issue. Uh, it's, I believe it's still possible in 2021 that God may address spiritual failure in our lives by actual illness and even death. That's what Paul teaches here. Now twice, I mentioned Dr. Carson twice, I heard him tell this story. It happened to his systematic uh, theology professor when he was pastoring a church in the outback of Australia. And it was a small Baptist church in a very rural community. It was the only church in town. And uh, he went there and tried preaching the gospel. He tried to be faithful to the Lord. He soon discovered that this was a wild frontier town uh, where the elders in the church, uh, he said, participated in all kinds of moral turpitude and financial shenanigans. He said, the elders of the church. And that the, the whole town he called a, 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 like an outback Peyton place. So it was a mess. When the, the pastor tried to exercise church discipline, it was impossible. All the leaders of the church opposed him. After three years, he was very lonely and discouraged, and he finally started to beg God. He said, Lord, you put me in the wrong place. I can't handle this. I'm not doing any good. I'm not seeing anybody converted. I wish you'd just take me out of here and put me in some place that's more suited to how you've gifted me. Uh, bring someone else in who's a real man of God or, or clean up the church. And there's nothing I can do with this. And he prayed that daily, multiple times a day, often in tears. And after three months of that kind of praying, he started to have funerals. He had 34 funerals in this very small village, mostly leaders in that church. And the next year he baptized 200 people. And Dr. Carson said, now don't misunderstand me. He said, this is not a bit of magic. I'm not suggesting this is the first thing you do as a pastor. In fact, pray this too quickly and you might be the first to go, he said. But remember, we serve a God who's holy. 
And the worst thing that can happen to us is that He should not discipline us at all. He said that's what this text says. It's a good thing to face some of the judgment of God. He disciplines His children. He, He chastens, He corrects those He loves. God helped the church where He just lets them go their own way. And there's no judgment. Because pretty soon you've got a dead church. And that means the Lord's table is a place that can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. A curse. Not a blessing. Now the flip side of that is that it's absolutely crucial for our spiritual lives. This this is an incredible reminder that in Christ, our He died for us that we might have life, that we're forgiven and we remember. We're children of the living God and we remember. And Paul concludes this, verse 34, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul's just reminding if you think communion is about satisfying your physical hunger, you've got it wrong. You've missed the whole point of communion. So if nothing else this morning, I want you to realize how critical it is to take communion seriously. Absolutely essential. Because at this table we hear, we touch, we taste, we remember the one who rescued us by his death, burial, and resurrection and gave us new life. The blessing of the Lord's table is celebrating that we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And it's only when we are dulled to that It's only when we don't recognize and admit our own sin and our desperate need of the Savior that it becomes a fail. Through Christ, we overcome our failure. We overcome our bad tempers. We overcome our defeats. We overcome our lusts. We overcome our fears. We overcome our pettiness. We overcome our weaknesses. We overcome our unworthiness, all on the basis of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And around the table of the Lord, the bread and the cup, our selfishness, our insincerity, our fears, our brokenness, the long hours we've wasted doing our own thing instead of God's thing, somehow fall away. And we celebrate that Christ is risen and we are alive in Him. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, thank You for that truth that is real and potent. Thank You for that way in which You have arranged uh, for us to remember to celebrate time after time what you have provided for us lord enable us to with understanding eat and drink in remembrance of our savior may this be the reminder of how desperately needy we are and how much you have made it possible for us to be overcomers by the blood We pray this in the name of our living Savior Jesus. Amen. So use these uh, moments as we sing together to prepare to take the bread and the cup and remember our Savior.
Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. So we share in this bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the King. Jesus Christ torn free Eat and remember The wounds that heal The death that brings us life Paid the price To make us one So we share In this bread of life dream of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the
Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, records the night that Jesus instituted this supper. It says, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. So maybe you can picture that triclinium scene, Jesus with his disciples. And as they were eating, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Is it I, Lord? If you haven't done so already, just take a moment and ask, is it I, Lord? In what way have I betrayed you even this week? And confess and receive His forgiveness through the blood of Christ. That's what this table helps us to do. Confront our failures and betrayals and not take them lightly and recognize that the price has been paid. Take that moment. Is it I, Lord? Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. So if you would take that symbol of His body, and after blessing it, thank you God for what you've provided through the sacrifice of Christ. He broke that bread and gave it to His disciples and said, take, eat, this is My body. Let us eat. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us drink. Jesus said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that is the day that we look forward to with great expectation. Thanks be to God. We're going to close our service today with one more song. We sing together, Oh, come to the altar. Would you stand and join along with us?
pronounce this benediction over you. Just remind you that as always, I'm here at the front to uh, greet you, to pray with you as uh, God leads. Go in these words from Revelation chapter 1. Go now in the power of Him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to our God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.